Hey everyone, it's Eric with Barrel and Hatchet, and thanks again for coming on with, for another episode of Hatchet Cast here on Spotify. I do have a special guest with me and an old friend, and uh, today we're going to be talking about economics. So our guest is a big fan of economics. Also, we're going to talk about survival stuff, some basic survival skills that would be good for every person to know, um, and also some misconceptions about survival things with all the TV shows and all the different things are just kind of distracting and so we're going to try to clear the air and just focus on a few things that are really necessary and talk about some things that you should be thinking about um, but we're going to just have a good conversation and my guest uh, it's good to have you Eric Martins how are you doing I'm good buddy thanks for having me on uh, so I hear that you have a YouTube channel and uh, would you mind give a little intro of yourself and yeah yeah, yeah. so I am uh, Eric and I go way back Number one, we share the same name. So, <laughs> um, well, we go way back to SEER training, and uh, I've been in for 15 years in the military now. Still, still a SEER instructor uh, at an F-16 squadron here in Colorado. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with SEER, it stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And we essentially teach um, teach people who are high risk of isolation how to survive, how to avoid capture, and if they get captured, how to avoid incriminating themselves. And uh, I have a side hobby of macroeconomics for a lot of different reasons. Number one, I think um, I think our national debt is the biggest threat to our national security. I'm not the only one who thinks this. Um, multiple chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have said the same thing. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of dove into... Macro, I've always been in, interested in investing, but I kind of dove into macro when uh, I saw the stock market going up and to the right, making all-time highs and people aren't working. And I was like, what is going on here? So I started uh, started doing some research and I realized the problem's bigger. And uh, if you're a student of history, uh, we're repeating it here. So um, that's what we're probably going to get into here. Cool, man. And uh, yeah, I am actually super uh, excited to talk about the microeconomics portion. I have about zero knowledge about that type of stuff. But um, yeah, I, um, <laughs> I'm i holding up a note for Eric. Uh, but uh, He said yeah. take my shirt off. <laughs> There's no rules. <laughs> Put your shirt back on. Uh, yes, pause flat hose together. That's an old zero one. Oh boy. Well, um, so, Hey, so real quick, you said you do kind of the, so the seer job and you're still doing that. Um, what are, what are most people don't, I think don't really understand what seer is and also that it's even a full-time career. So could you kind of go a little bit into that? Yeah. So, uh, air force is the only, um, Department of the DOD that has full-time SEER specialists. Everybody else is, uh, it's kind of an additional duty or special duty for them. So that comes with pluses and minuses. I would say um, we, obviously, that's our full-time job. So I spend a lot of time thinking about um, the OSHIP plan. Like what what are these pilots going to do in different environments? Um, but majority of my job is spent training um, people who are going to diff different COCOM, different deployment statuses. So they could potentially be going to Africa, CENTCOM, what have you. And uh, obviously there's different people who can hold them captive, different abilities for uh, the enemy there when it comes to looking for people or uh, 
firepower that they might have. So I kind of curtail the training based off of, uh, of where they're going and what they're doing. Now, most people, I kind of tell people Sears like an insurance salesman because a lot of, a lot of the things I'm selling, which is an oh shit plan. Uh, you know, you don't know you need it until you need it, right? Like life insurance. So a lot of it is making the subject matter interesting enough that they want to pay attention and engaging enough that they, uh, they're taking something away. Cause if you've been in the military or been around people in the military, we have tons of training that we need to do. And a lot of it falls on deaf ears cause there's got so much, so much to do prior to deployment. So my job is to make it engaging and useful. So yeah, I, I think that's. Um, I think it's one of those things where where folks don't really think about it until, like you said, l- until they need it, and then it's just like, okay, w- w- what do I do now? <laughs> so, kind of helping them figure out on the fly. I think the biggest thing I, I, you know, from that course was learning the skill of improvising and figuring things out. You know, making a solution out of a problem that provides you almost nothing. So, um, I think the biggest thing is figuring out where to find solutions in places you, you wouldn't think to look, um, and just being creative. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I learned in that course and, and, and going through that experience was, um, how to improvise. Yeah. One of the things I tell my guys, you don't need the training if you keep the airplane in the air. So that's, it's focus number one, but it is, it's mindset over skill set. So um, anyone, you know, I've done a couple reintegrations for people who have come back and, uh, and read a couple and, uh, basically we kind of do a debrief, um, get lessons learned, actionable intel, et cetera. And the one thread throughout is they all said, I didn't think it would happen to me. So everyone has that spidey sense when they're deployed, like, Hey, maybe I should, uh, you know, I got a little butt pucker effect. Maybe I should pay attention here. Maybe I should ask the question that I don't know the answer to because uh, that's really what's going to save your life is like the mindset that it'll happen to me or it can happen to me. And we've all, you know, if you're in the military after a while on deployment, you kind of let your guard down or you can let your guard down a little bit. And it's kind of ops normal. You do the same thing every day. um, And then the worst thing can happen. Worst day of your life can happen all of a sudden and you were never paying attention. So um, I always reiterate the mindset of wanting the knowledge, filling those knowledge gaps if you have them. Like, what would I do in this situation? Um, and then if you don't know the answer, asking the right people, Intel, Seer, et cetera. Now, you know, you kind of bring up the worst day of your life could happen. I mean, that kind of brings to mind uh, all those people up in New York only last month that froze to death just mm-hmm. going home, you know, or going and running errands. I mean, it was like, I think it was like over 30 people froze to death uh, or died in their cars. And people were stealing stuff. Um, and, you know, I always tell people in America, we got it really good. And most people know that. But you don't know how thin that line is between civilization and anarchy. And it's one uh, natural disaster away, uh, one financial crisis away. And human beings, you know, part of my job is teaching people what they would potentially do on the worst day of their life. Everyone thinks they're altruistic until they don't have food, water, shelter, clothing, or medical attention. There's one piece of bread and two people starving. What happens? And uh, we'll see how altruistic you are when it's the worst day of your life. And I always tell people being prepared for that day 
will make you more altruistic. You're kind of, you kind of have these animal instincts of survival. And if you, if it's new to you, that scenario is new to you and you've never mentally rehearsed it, never prepped for it. Um, you're going to be panicking and that's probably, of course you'll be nervous, but probably the worst thing you can do is panic because you make horrible decisions. So whether it's mentally rehearsing, understanding you're capable of doing some very not so good things when uh, shit hits the fan. Those are normally the people that do well under stress. There's people who have kind of thought through it and understand they have their weaknesses and they need to, um, to marginalize those weaknesses as much as possible. What are some, um, what are some good case studies that you've studied or experienced where, um, folks who have panicked, how, how has it worked out for them? Well, um, I'll give you, I'll give you an example without too much detail. Uh, there was a, uh, there's a radio that, um, that these pilots eject with, um, that's meant for just survival. It's just a survival radio, dedicated frequency, etc. So it's kind of like the bat, send up the bat signal if something bad happens. And we had one, uh, one gentleman eject and the power button is pretty simple. It says PWR. And I always tell people, you don't read the uh, instructions to your iPhone. Uh, you just figure it out. The problem is when you're, you know, you just ejected from your aircraft, your adrenaline's flowing. And so your hand-eye coordination's off, your muscle memory's off. A lot of th- you, you do a lot of things that you de- you're not even thinking um, critically at that point. But the power button to turn the radio on, you have to press and hold it. And he was hitting it like you're clicking your mouse, and he thought it was broken. And so <laughs> he ended up ha- having to get contact uh, rescue forces through an actual payphone. Um through uh, local nationals who were lucky enough to be friendly to him. But um, I've seen all kinds of things in captivity. You know, we, we run a mock camp in, uh, in the military to, to get people uh, mentally ready for what it might be like in captivity. But um, some of the examples I give people, you know, you live in a civilization, you, uh, you know, if you've been deployed, you've seen some heinous stuff, but, a lot of times you don't think you're capable of it or your fellow, you know, your neighbor's capable of those kinds of things. But um, some good uh, case studies are things like the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment. If you've never heard of that. Uh, it was a psychology experiment uh, about how to handle people in prison. And so they gave some psych-, some psych students some numbers, shaved their head, gave them the same uniform, and dehumanized them by not referring to them by their name. Uh, but the catch was... There was another group uh, who was also students, and those were the captors. So they kind of had this loose, the the psychology professor had these loose rules to see how things went, right? To to see uh, the psychological effects of being dehumanized, etc. What he didn't realize was he was trying to study the the prison uh, or the prisoner's reaction. But what really happened is what the guards did. Um, And you'd probably react just like anybody else if you, you were in class with a bunch of people, you're like, hey, bro, I know you. You're my guard, da 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 um, You know, this is kind of cheesy. But three days in, the prisoners did a had a revolt. And they put their mattresses up against their doors, and they said, we're not following orders anymore. And uh, just with a little coaxing, the guards started dehumanizing them even more. Um, and it's just an interesting case study on what human beings do to each other. 
especially if they think they're doing the right thing or uh, they have orders to do it. You know what's so funny is there's actually a book right now that I'm actually uh, a couple of buddies that I hang out with they're reading right now, and it's about the Germans and how they coerced normal people within their regions like Poland or other places to murder their neighbors for the Third Reich. And it's crazy to think like they were normal people. They were not like psychopaths. They weren't murderers. They were just normal people. And some were gave the, I was just following orders. Some of them would just get drunk and do it. And a, a, a lot of times they would execute these Jews who are their neighbors and friends and stuff like that. And it was, they kept, they would have to, like one person be shot like 15 times because they didn't want to sh- kill them. So they would shoot them in the arm and then shoot them in the leg and then shoot them in the groin and then shoot them in the chest. And then it's like, so you got, you know, and, and the, and eventually it started getting easier and easier and easier. Um, and so it is absolutely insane how, how quickly human, humanity can really degrade into more of an animal. Um, the most dangerous people are people who think they're doing something righteous. Yes. And they're doing yeah. something evil. Yeah. So a lot of people think of evil and good in this binary, like, like, uh, Hitler was sitting in his bunker, just, you know, petting a cat and having this evil laugh, knowing what he was doing was wrong. And yes, he was deranged. Yes, he was evil. But what a lot of what, how he sold the German people on it is they were eradicating, um, eradicating something that was evil, which were the Jews among other people, gypsies and homosexuals, etc. But they thought they were doing, they brainwashed themselves enough that their conscience was gone. And uh, if you follow the Nuremberg trials, this is something interesting for uh, people in the U.S. military. Um, you know, in the Nuremberg trials, their excuse, which was uh, the Germans who were put on trial for the war crimes, um, their excuse was, I was following orders. And uh, we basically, we convicted them basically saying, you had a higher moral duty to not follow these orders, even during war. And, uh, Everyone's capable of, of doing what they did. And most people, I'd say, you know, during my uh, during my conduct after capture class, I tell people, um, no one would think they'd be part of the SS in Germany in the 1930s, 1940s. No American thinks that. And the, the tr- truth of the matter is 95% of us would. I hope I, mean, I think, wouldn't. I mean, think about how quickly people, I mean, not to bring up. 2020 and how that started but there were people already dehumanizing based off of what they thought was right for public health and in COVID and all that stuff and it, it it devolved it literally devolved into like you know what just go somewhere else like we should just round everybody up stick you in a cor- in a quarantine like start, we started to get really scary and spicy of like whoa, 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 what are we doing here and there's some countries that started to put that in effect that were West, like Australia, you know, yep. Canada, all these other countries that were, it's like, wait, wait, that's happening there. They're, they're literally arresting people and bringing them back to camp, locking them in a building or doing things of that nature where now it's like, I'm going to yell at you or I'm going to call the cops on you to make you comply or, or do things of that nature. So now put that into a perspective of like how it was for, the people back in the 40, 30s and stuff in Germany, it's like it started off probably very similar. Yeah, and the same thing with the USSR. It's like uh, during that same time, it compliance 
and the lack of understanding. Like, so here's a couple things that stood out to me. I'm no, I'm no scientist. Um, You're not. I'm, ju- I'm just enlisted. I work for a living. <laughs> um, but uh, uh. even they tried to numb the critical thinking part of your brain. I'll give you two examples. Um, what happens with natural immunity? Why do I still need the vaccine if I have natural immunity? It, there could be a reason, right, that I still need the vaccine, but I wasn't given one. I was told to shut up. And then everyone knew the um, the arbitrary COVID measures, like somehow you put up plexiglass and, and that'll stop it. And somehow sitting at a table, uh, you can take your mask off and eat. But then you got to put your mask back on to go to the bathroom. Like all these arbitrary things didn't make logical sense. And to a certain extent, I, I think there's some malice involved, but there's also stupidity involved because they're, you know, people who are malicious take advantage of people who are stupid, to be honest with you. Yeah, so it was if a you're, perfect example, perfect storm. Yeah. And so, so these, when I say stupid, I mean people who are, have no cojones as a leader to make a decision. So they do the safest thing always. Right, they don't want anybody mad at them. They're a politician. They are worried about more power and control. And it's not always malicious, but there are certain people that are malicious that use that um, for more power and control. And uh, we saw it. <laughs> we saw it in our own life. But it doesn't always lead. This is the thing. There, there are some like chicken littles who are like the sky is falling. The sky is falling. We're Nazi Germany all of a sudden. That's not necessarily true. But we're somewhere on the road. We're going down the wrong way wrong path right so a a doesn't equal z but a next is b after b is c and you keep going down that road you're going to get to z you're going to get to totalitarian stuff that you do not like so every little step we take along the way we do have to stand up i mean there's even there's i remember there was even a point in time during that that whole phase where there were even in like government officials and stuff saying, Hey, don't prepare. If you're prepping and, and buying extra food and saving it, like that's bad. Like you, you should shame those people or being, and I was like, what are we talking about here? Like why, why is that all of a sudden a bad thing to be ready and prepared for a disaster? Didn't have to be anything. It could be, I literally, I'm preparing for a hurricane or something or a natural disaster. Right. But why all of a sudden is that now being demonized by, you know, the government or local municipalities and things of that nature. That's, it's, it's interesting. Is there malice or is it just idiocracy? I, I mean, I can't tell you what people's motivation are. All I can tell you is that, so I look at outcomes, right? At the end of the day, like if you, and there's a lot of politicians that tell you uh, they're shutting down their, your business with a smile on their face. So people go, oh, they, they're good. They're, you know, they're happy and they're smiling at me. What are they doing though? Right. They're arresting a paddles, paddle border in the middle of the ocean during COVID because he might spread it to the dolphins or whatever <laughs> they thought. Manatees. But, <laughs> some say I resemble that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it's – and any rational person – here's the thing. Rational people doubt themselves. They go, am I crazy? This, this COVID stuff seems insane. But, like, everyone around me is kind of like – doing it and um but it just seems off and so you start to numb your own critical thinking you're like well i guess i need to get the vaccine because everybody else has it and stops the spread what um why is everyone worried about me getting it and um 
it's it's uh that is like I was talking about down that road that you do not want to go down where you start to peer pressure um, is more powerful than science. It's more powerful than debate. That's why free speech. What's so insidious is you, you censor yourself. The government doesn't censor you. You censor yourself because you don't want, you don't want people to think something about you. That's what happened in the USSR. That's what happened in Germany. You just start to censor yourself. And, uh, that's why, you know, podcasts like yours and people getting the message out, you know, I, uh, like you said, I have a YouTube channel. They give, there's, there's this very thin line, things you're allowed to say, things you're not allowed to say. And, uh, that's a whole nother debate on like a, a private company and et cetera, et cetera. Even though the, I think the FBI has been, uh, doing some quid pro quos with big tech, but, um, we are again walking down a dangerous path where it's like these people have acceptable ideas. These people don't have acceptable ideas. And I think sunlight is the best disinfectant. So the ACLU um, actually defended, and, and th this was during the civil rights era. Uh, they defended neo-Nazis ability to protest at their rallies. Um, and the reason they did is they were such staunch, staunch supporters of free speech. Because they realize it is a stick to be wielded against whomever the government wants to. So if you silence this speech, um, and then on top of that, where does speech go when you silence it? It goes underground. People become, uh, let's say. Yeah, it doesn't extremist. stop. It no, doesn't yeah. stop. Let's say people are extremists, legitimate, um, where they have these insane ideas, whatever they happen to be, whatever your version of that is. If you force them to go on the dark web, or you make them or more Twitter. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got the blue check mark. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to pay for it though. Not that yeah. popular. Yeah. Um, but if you force them underground, they be they have the potential to become more radicalized, um, because they they don't get to interact with free thinkers, logical thinking and debate, right? So if you, there's this idea going around, um, maybe you're a Holocaust denier, right? Um, if you say the Holocaust was fake on YouTube, you will get, you know, shut down. I'm not a Holocaust denier, but I think there's people should be able to talk. Why? Because people who are like, maybe I wasn't told the truth about the Holocaust, see both sides and then they can make up their own mind. But anybody who is against free speech, think about what they're saying. You're too dumb. You're too dumb to understand what a truth and a lie is. So there will have these arbitrary people who can filter the information for you, who somehow don't have the ability to, uh, or have this magical ability to watch this and not be affected by it, but you don't have that ability. These censors do. Not you, because you're too dumb. Yeah. That's well, ultimately what politics is. It's all control. Do. It's all control at the end of the day. Right. It's it's to, to fun, funnel a narrative. And the I think, honestly, and this is something I feel and just have seen a lot, is I feel like there's a lot more people waking up to, hey, we've been spoon-fed and our parents have always been spoon-fed a narrative. I mean, even the GWAT, even you could, some people could say the invasion of Iraq, all of these things where it's like, you know, even if it was for a good purpose, it's still a narrative at the end of the day, whether it's good or bad or wrong, like you're being fed a narrative. I mean, what's going on in Europe right now 
it's a narrative. Like, so those types of things is you have to be a free thinker. I was listening to Jordan Peterson on his recent Joe Rogan uh, episode today, and it is a society of free thinkers are people who truly are free because they can voice their opinions um, and come to logical conclusions on their own about any type of subject. But if you have folks that are just the herd mentality, I just want to fit in. I want to do this like everybody else. I just want to be normal. I want to, uh, you know, get back to normal or what they call it, not build back better, but anyways, get back to normal. Right. And it's like, you are going to be the person that is not able to think, is this wrong or is this right? Um, and, and check it against my own morality. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a dangerous, well, scary place. Cause then yeah, people, people start to dictate, desire... they dictate your morality. And, and people who desire peace at all costs, you know, you need to understand the enemy or the person who disagrees, disagrees with you gets a vote in there. Right. So if, if the other person's willing to push, you have to give to have peace. Right. Well, so what are you willing to give? Where's your line in the sand? Mm. Mm. Everyone's line in the sand is different, but, um, I'll tell you, uh, you know, you brought up GWAT. Um, I've been to Afghanistan twice, and both times I said, what the F are we doing here? You know, I we were doing good stuff there, but I, ask, I would ask people, what does this have to do with defending the Constitution of the United States? Anything? Because it doesn't seem like it. And I'm sure there's more to the story than that, but... Um, again, what was the outcome, right? 20 years and your, your E3 in the army could have told you that that's how it was going to end up. Not necessarily that the, the withdrawal was going to be insane, but that Afghanistan would fall within days, right? If anybody trained at Afghan, uh, they knew this, <laughs> it's, yeah. it wasn't rocket science. So I was like, well, we're, if we're nation building, we'll be here for 500 years. Um, I don't think America has the stomach for that. Uh, and if we're here killing terrorists who wear flip-flops and we're the nation's most powerful military, why the heck are we here for 20 years? Oh, it's well, good weapons testing. Yeah, it's a red flag. Yeah. Overseas. But uh, it just, uh, it costs American lives and uh, a lot of, um, a lot of harm mentally. So, you yeah, know, I if mean, you, if, go ahead. Well, I mean, if you're saying... As a critical thinker, you should look back and go, hey, especially for military guys who critically think and say, hey, we, we just did this for 20 years. And now we're being spoon fed a narrative to get into another war and not a war with people with flip flops, a war with guys who have nuclear missiles. Like, yeah, they're conventional force. You can look at the stats and stuff. may not be the same, but their nuclear arsenal is very real. And we know what those right. do. So, you know, critically don't just you have if critically thinking literally could save and reshape history but if everybody goes in lockstep and says yep roger that let's go okay yeah well then it'll be the sons and the daughters that are going to go fight in wars that you don't want to be in um and honestly like it's it's something that it i have to require i have to pray about it because it it stresses me out for my own children. Like it stresses me out of what kind of world are, are we leaving our kids? Yeah. I, I try to put things in perspective because we've, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. I, uh, I've had it pretty good. 
we've had a life of abundance. Yes, we had 9-11 and war, etc., but we didn't have these world wars. And I try to put myself in other people's shoes, like in World War II, like what they were thinking during the Civil War, what they were thinking, like everything's lost. And I do think society goes in these ebbs and flows in the old adage, like uh, good, man, good men make uh, good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make hard times. Hard times make good men again. And it's a cycle of when you're prosperous, um, you're up, you're kind of up the scale on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're familiar with that. Like, we're all the way up to what gender am I, right? And you can't think about what gender you are. Really can't if you don't have food, water, shelter, clothing, or medical attention. If you're, if you're trying to survive, um, natural gender roles tend to happen. Number one. Um, and, uh, number two, you don't have time for that. You just don't. But so, so when you look at America, we're so prosperous that we're literally manufacturing, uh, oppression. Like it's actually big business. Racism is big business. And if it's the worst, if white supremacy is such an issue, then, um, how come people make so much money off of fake, like Jesse Smollett and stuff like that. So yeah, you know, we, we're, we're at the point where we're making stuff up. And I think we're, I don't know if we're peak clown world, but I think that what this leads to is hard times, unfortunately, but hard times lead to good men. Think about the kid that was a super rich kid growing up that always had every single toy his mom and dad gave him, always got everything, had all the video games, and he was always the most bored one. He was always said, I'm so bored, there's nothing to do. And so whenever you have so much prosperity, you know, like you you take for granted all the luxuries of life. And when that is stripped away, especially if it's all you know, think about the things that we talked about before, what people will do once you strip them away of things, that you strip away their whole world. At what point will a person degrade to the lowest possible savagery that mm -hmm. is imaginable? And I, you know, I can't remember who said it. They said, people don't want freedom. They want safety. And I agree with that. The problem is um, safety is a promise that can't be delivered upon. Right? So what ends up happening, remember, uh, Hitler was democratically elected. He was democratically elected because people were so desperate from uh, hyperinflation in, in Germany and them having to pay reparations because of World War One. So people were desperate. They... Literally, we're throwing stuff at a wall. What will stick? Anybody who can get us out of this problem. Um, and I, by the way, I think you can see that in America too. Not necessarily Hitler, but somebody who's like a take charge kind of person. And and people are like this. This ship has sailed so far the wrong direction. I'll take anything, anything besides the status quo. Yeah. Um, and uh, the problem is when you. Um, you desire safety over freedom, you get neither. That is, I think that was Benjamin Franklin that said that. And the reason being is safety, a promise of safety, requires totalitarianism to some degree. It requires uh, an authoritarian leader to take away things. Um, and so when, when people say safe, I also think they want prosperity. They don't just want safety. They also don't obviously want to starve to death. But they don't come and say, you know, totalitarian governments and starvation are kind of synonyms. Yeah. Um, because that eventually happens.
No, I mean, it's also like think about the old, the medieval ages during the time of kings and monarchies where it's like they wanted the safety of the castle. All right, cool. Well, you're cleaning my freaking porter, John, whenever I'm done. You're the royal poop cleaner. And yeah, uh, yeah you get to hide inside these walls. And yeah, sure, I'll feed you. Um, and you get to wear a dress that has color in it. But like, you know, it's one of those things where if you're listening to this podcast, most likely folks that are, are, are probably free thinkers and critical thinkers or learning to be one. Um, and that's, that's kind of where those who prepare and think with a survival mindset are already thinking on contingencies of what if things go wrong and how can I prepare for those types of contingencies or establish a good contingency for that as well as help others along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, you should always have, what's interesting is, uh, we live in a world of just in time that, cause there's always something, you know, you're hungry. You can go out to eat, you can go to the grocery store. That is new, right? That is not a normal thing. And, um, if the last two years didn't like at least get to, like a lot of people have this connotation of prepper, uh, of like the discovery shows where people spend a hundred thousand dollars on a bunker and they're training their kids to run a turret or something. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't think like that. I think like, Hey, um, if we go, go to a world where grocery supply chains have an issue, which is not out of the realm of thinking, what do you think the grocery store is going to be like? Insane. Like, remember toilet paper? I was just like, about to say toilet paper. Yeah. Now it's chicken. Yeah. Or an eggs and crap like that, right? So, like, people are reactionary. Do I want myself or my wife to have to go to the grocery store in that pandemonium? No. Okay. And then worst case scenario, the... the Shelves are empty because this is kind of a self-licking ice cream cone because b- uh, inflation and like supply chains are both uh, mathematical and in your head. Because if you go to the grocery store uh, and you realize, hey, there's half the milk that's normally here. They must be running out. I'm going to double up. And then the, the person behind you says that times two because they realize you've doubled up. So they should double up. And so this this fever pitch of like, hey. I got to start buying stuff in more bulk um, can happen really quickly. And it happened with with toilet paper and it can happen with food. Um, I I like to think in probabilities um, because there are no certainties, but is that a probability? 100%. So on top of that, and the last thing I'll say is it's an investment, believe it or not. Best thing, the best returning investment of 2022 was food, right? And I, I'm not saying you have to go go out and get freeze-dried meals. Why, why don't you just get six months supply of what you normally do, and you can do it slowly. You can get a little extra groceries. Every, and then that's like kind of your pantry. You're always restocking in the back and taking off the front. And uh, if you think groceries are going to go up in price, which they are, um, you're also saving money. So that's a win. Yeah. What about uh, – so I've, I've heard also as far as you talked about supply chain <laughs> – um, that I can't remember where I heard it from, but I think maybe, maybe it was economic ninja, but he was talking to a friend of his that's in the, in the car industry and how the global supply chain works in terms of everything is just in time. So they don't have a warehouse full of parts. They receive it from a shipment, a truck, a truck delivers that part. They take that part from that same day, stick it onto a car that car part then goes to the next thing and it's literally shipped so if there's any interruption in that 
it it screws the whole thing and it's insane how much of that type of supply chain is in all different industries of with commodities that we need like necessity items can you explain further in that or do you know about that yeah so so um the majority of supply chains on consumer goods is optimized for efficiency not resiliency so that saves them money therefore saves you money um but it's not resilient so they don't have multiple suppliers and part of that uh optimization for efficiency is bigger companies buy smaller companies and there's becomes one supplier of said part and it's single point of failure um with cars is a good example don't get chips they just have cars almost ready to drive they just don't have a chip in them and a lot of a lot of the supply chain in my humble opinion um it, it's breaking down for a lot of different reasons um covid being one of them but another one is geopolitical tensions so um, the United States, first thing we did when Russia invaded Ukraine is Russia was saving uh, their excess money, their excess reserves in U.S. treasuries because the dollar is a well-preserved currency. First thing we did was freeze those. So trade and the global supply chain is used as a obviously less lethal uh, wartime measure. Or uh, that's usually the first thing we do as the United States is we sanction people. And um, who needs who more, China or the United States? Like, who needs who more? I'd, I'd say China needs the United States more, but still, they can flex, right? And they did that during COVID because uh, guess where, <clears throat> since we optimize for efficiency, guess where we get all, almost all of our prescription drugs? China. All of our medical equipment? China. Um and that's changing for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think you're going to, um, so kind of a broader picture, uh, the dollar being the world reserve currency, what that means to, to the layperson is when, let's say China wants to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, they don't sell, settle in yuan or Saudi Arabian currency. They settle in dollars. So China needs dollars. How do they get those dollars? We have to be, we export them to the world by becoming a consumer economy. That's why all the jobs are gone, all the manufacturing jobs, because we can't compete. We have to export those dollars to the world to be the world reserve currency, which gives us a lot of power, because essentially, since oil and a lot of other things are settled in dollars, we can print our prosperity to some degree. But what the, that's the benefit, but what the cost is, is we can't compete when it comes to exports. So... The only thing the United States is exporting is essentially um, intellectual property. Because um, in a free society, uh, people are free thinkers, and you have things like Silicon Valley, you have things like Boeing, you have all these free thinkers, and then China goes, thank you for that, and then they <laughs> just take those ideas. But we're not exporting goods. And that happened really quickly, um, basically from the 1970s to now. Um, you see these ghost towns where people used to work at a manufacturing plant. There are things that are onshoring, things that are expensive to ship like cars, um, but still a lot of those parts and the raw materials come from overseas. So, I mean, also, I know that the the dollar is about to, I mean, China and Russia and these other countries that are allies with them are working towards um, making that no longer a thing because I think Afghanistan painted a very big 
red warning sign for a lot of countries saying, hey, okay, we're, we're buying your debt in exchange for using your currency, but we're also buying your security as a military power. And what we saw in Afghanistan was a big flop, a big nothing burger. Um, and so that in itself, I mean, there's a lot of folks that not question the might of the military, but just saying like, is our defense in a position to truly stand up to what's going on? Not because of the people within the branch, but because of the leadership running it. Um, yeah, I think, uh, so Russia, you know, this is a guess from me, but I think Russia invaded Ukraine partially. Putin's not stupid, right? And no, he's not. He's underestimated. Under under you know, he's the head of the KGB. You don't get to the head of the KGB by being a dummy, right? So, um, he's not stupid, and he knew what was going to happen, right? He knew sanctions were going to come. He knew the West was going to do all the stuff we're doing. But, um, being a strategic thinker, remember NATO was stood up in response to the USSR. And then Germany, literally, and we still have NATO. NATO's still around. Germany was getting 70% of their energy from Russia. And Germany's part of NATO. And you might be scratching your head like, what? What? Like, NATO? <laughs> What's NATO for if... And then you're paying Russia for their oil? And you might ask yourself, in that relationship... Germany is reliant on Russia for energy. Russia is reliant on Germany for dollars. Who needs who more? Germany needs Russia more. That's what, what it comes down to. Okay, so then you can do the math on why Nord Stream 2 was blown up. Um, because that was a bargaining chip, right? That Russia could always turn the, the power back on to Germany. And now they can't. Because the pipeline is destroyed. Okay. So who has, I don't know who did that, but you got to think who benefits. Yeah. Um, but we've been playing, I think the West, Europe specifically, has been playing really stupid games. And it's called nuclear roulette, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, isn't it fun? Um, I just watched Chernobyl, by the way. So oh. if, you're, uh, <laughs> if you're interested in what nuclear fallout looks like, well, I think show. going going back to what you were saying when it comes to people believing they're doing the right thing, um, I actually, in my opinion, I believe Putin legitimately does because of who he surrounds himself with. I think he has an ideological drive towards doing what he's doing, and that's to unite all of the Russian states. Now, I think that I don't I don't know How if do you know he, he wants to do that. Well, I mean, based off of his aid, that is. I can't remember his name. Um, his daughter, the aide's daughter, was killed. But I goes, he's like a very close confidant to Putin, and he's a ideologically driven individual. Where he talks about um, the Russian Orthodoxy and how that goes into Russia first. He's a nationalist, you know, and and so is Putin. So like, um, Putin is thinking. I don't. I don't think that Putin expected NATO's arming of Ukraine just because of 2014 and the way that things went. I mean, like the Ukrainian military at the time was getting beat up by rebels, like, right. you know, and so it required that extra help um, and aid. But um, I don't think that Russia really anticipated that amount of in your face support with weapons and things of that nature. Um, now, I think that it almost feels like instead of coming to the talking 
the peace tables or an agreement, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're now bone, we're playing chicken and each side's got nuclear missiles. So we're playing chicken and saying, okay, well, you're going to back down. You're going to get out of Ukraine. You're going to give us an apology. You're going to do, and it's like, these are non-negotiables. <laughs> like that's not going to happen. And Putin right. has already said, if we lose, the world will lose. So at this point, why aren't we saying what we're doing is we're calling his bluff or trying to call his bluff and hoping that he's not going to act on what he's saying. But if Putin is, you know, I think backed into a corner enough at the end of the day, like you back a dog into a corner, it's going to do something irrational. And I think right. that also China is in the same boat. I don't, um, but yeah, cause I have another whole thing I want to ask you about China. Well, guess who's buying Russian oil now? China. Yeah. So like, um, you know, I think we're naive in the West to think that people think the same way as we do. Right. So we look at, um, Afghanistan and we go, Hey, as soon as we give them internet and a smartphone, they're going to want to be just like America. I'm like, do you know, Afghanistan used to be like America in the 1970s and then went back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why? So we kind of are naive, like to think we can just Westernize the world. And a lot of these countries have thousands of years of history and thousands of years of, um, I would say, what's the word I'm thinking? Tradition, right? So unlike the United States, you know, pretty much everything's new compared to the rest of the world. Um, when it comes to, to, to tradition in history. So we try to Westernize or we put a Western filter on these people. And what's a, I think it was Norm Macdonald. He's a comedian. He points to a history book and he's like, isn't it weird that everyone who wins the war is the good guy? It says so right here in this book. So it's like the winners write history, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so when you're, <laughs> when you're looking at Putin, we always want a narrative. So Russia, obviously bad. So there's got to be a good guy. So who's that? Oh, Zelensky. He's got to be good because Russia invaded. And uh, I did a video about a week ago. Um, it, it would be the equivalent of Biden's entire presidential cabinet um, being caught in corruption. So these people are driving wow. around in Ferraris. Yeah. Ferraris going on lavish vacations. Zelensky's cabinet. Um, living in posh mansions. And doing quid pro quos with military contracts, like overcharging and then pocketing the difference. Well, I mean, it was, I think, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars within 12 months. And it's like, but we're giving them tanks. Why aren't they buying it with the money we're giving them? Well, again, you should ask the question. Uh, is So, number one, what being a critical thinker, and, and this is kind of rhetorical. What does victory look like? Do, do we really think that... Putin's going to be like, my B, dog, and and leave. Oh, by the and, way, yeah, here's an apology. Uh, yeah. Thank you, basket. <laughs> yeah, it's a fruit basket. Yeah. I love it. Um, it's got vodka in it. Yeah. Um, no. No. Okay, so I, I would say that's not a possibility. So, uh, and Zelensky's saying we're not giving up any of Ukraine. What any of this has to do with the West, I don't know. Right, I, I don't know, yeah. and, and and keep in mind, during the um, when NATO was formed, we told the USSR part of the agreement was, we won't expand east if you don't expand west. <laughs> We've been guess who broke that promise? <laughs> NATO. 
Yeah. So to say, I'm not saying Putin's a good guy, but to pretend like he had no reason to invade, like Ukraine's just sitting over there, like beep bopping around, and they're like, hey, you know, we're good people and uh, there's no corruption going on here. I think it was um, like what number on corruption scale? It was like second or first or something like that. What's funny is uh, if you look at the State Department website in February of 2022, they said, do not do business in Ukraine <laughs> because they are overtly corrupt and you could be killed. <laughs> wow. That's um, insane. But uh, you mind slide me a couple hundred billion in tax dollars? <laughs> and also some tanks, so maybe some Abrams. <laughs> um, it's yeah, like, it's just, I, I think what's, what disturbs me about it. And this is something where I think it's a mindset change and it's very, yes, we're a very proud country, but the one thing that we do have that to me strikes very similar tones of Romans who lived in the time of the fall of Rome is that could never happen. There's not a reason as to why it couldn't happen. It's just so in your face, like that would never happen. I've even, I've even entertained the idea just to critically think like, what if the United States as a country was invaded by a foreign force. And like, what would we do? And it's like, well, we don't even need to know or talk about what to do if that happens, because that would never happen. Right. It's sink or swim at that point. But it's like, uh, we're blessed in the United States, uh, militarily for a couple of, let's just say we don't have the most powerful military in the world. Um, geographically, we're pretty hooked up because we got a big ocean on either side of us. We've got Alaska. We've got all kinds of topography. So we're, um, there's, there's, yeah, we got, called, there's Florida men too. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of people with uh, scatter guns and all kinds of stuff, but it's like, um, there's a book called accidental superpower about how, uh, like the Mississippi river and all these things that the United States is blessed with, um, as far as landmass goes that made it, incredibly efficient at commerce and incredibly hard to attack. So, um, th so that's a, a plus in the column, but culture is, is a huge part, right? So, uh, there's enemies foreign and domestic and you, you hear things, <clears throat> it's common in, in politics today to use the word equity, which is a synonym for communism. If you didn't know, um, and they usually, you know, it's changing of the words, but same definition. You start out different places and it's the government's job to make sure that you have an equitable outcome. Um, that sounds familiar. That sounds like USSR language, but we're going to say it's equity, um, not communism because most people have a bad taste in their mouth for communism, but it doesn't matter what you call it. It's government control and it's totalitarianism. Um, and one of the things I'm worried about is, uh, you know, dovetailing into economics. You're going to hear a lot of things over, speaking of currency, about uh, a central bank digital currency. Have you heard of a CBDC before? Have you heard that phrase? Tell, used? Me, tell me more. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'll go into the problem um, first. Uh, before I talk about CBDC. So the United States and uh, pretty much all Western nations, and believe it or not, Russia is not in this position, but all Western nations, including the United States, have this huge problem. It's called debt. We've spent above our means, right? But 
That's not a problem if the debt is manageable. Now, during COVID, we hit the gas pedal. We started drinking sake bombs as we were driving, and we flew off the cliff. So now we're halfway down, haven't hit the ground yet, and we're still saying, so far, so good. So the problem is, um, the math problem is, $31 trillion in debt, 70% of tax receipts that come into the United States go to mandatory spending. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. It's very politically unpopular to tell your voters, hey, grandma, you're not getting your money. So politicians don't. They don't. They just take on more debt, right? It's also very unpopular to cut military spending. There's a lot of things that are unpopular. Everyone has their pet, whatever. So debt is piled on, piled on. The way we are able to live above our means, partially, is because we have the world reserve currency. So there is a demand for U.S. treasuries, which is saving in U.S. debt, essentially. It is giving an IOU, or sorry, giving money to the United States Treasury, and the Treasury trading you an IOU with interest. Now, there's two problems there. What if no one wants to buy our treasuries anymore? Which, which is I think is happening. happening. Yeah, yes. It's happening. And two, what if the interest rate goes up? Because most of that $31 trillion in debt is below 1% below 1%. And 1%, by the way, is about $300 billion. There's <laughs> no, no small sum. Oh, yeah, um, you know, chump change. Yeah, so what if, you know, being a logical thinker, we have an inflation rate of 8%. Do you think that people will, in perpetuity, buy our debt that is actually a net negative, so their interest rate, let's say, is 4%, so that means they're losing 4% if we have an inflation rate of 8 so there has to be a higher interest rate than inflation. So what's 10% of $31 trillion? It's $3.1 trillion. That's about every dime of tax receipts. Wow. So what, what does this mean? We have to take on more debt to pay off the old debt. Then we have to keep doing it. It's called a debt death spiral. The math is certain. What is not certain is how long it takes. And pretty much every other Western country is in worse shape than us, is in worse shape. Yeah. So, um, well, do you think that could be the downfall of the West? Um, so historically, if you look at currency crises, crises, is it crisis? Who knows? Whatever. Chris, Chris's. <laughs> What's the plural form of Lexus? No one knows. Lexi. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but the so if you look at history, anybody who's had hyperinflation or their currency went to crap, um, Argentina's done it like three times in the last forty years. Turkey's about to do it. There's a lot of countries who do it. Here's the problem: they have the dollar, right? So if their currency sucks, they can go use the dollar, which is pervasive around the world, right? So there's always a better currency out there, and the dollar. Think about it this way. It's the cleanest, dirty shirt in the laundry. They're all dirty, but the dollar's still the best. So there, a lot of people, you may have heard, the dollar's strong. And you should follow that. Follow up with, compared to what? Compared to other currencies? Correct. Compared to eggs? Compared to real estate? Compared to cars? No. Right? So it's not really these things are going up in value. It's the currency going down. So how long that pl takes to play out? is our only 
hope of not having pandemonium. Because what is true pandemonium is hyperinflation, where things are going up 50% a month or more, right? In Weimar Germany, they had like 2,000 or like, I think it was like, oh yeah, here's a, here's a good stat about Weimar. In, I believe it was 1927, um, there was a total of 1 trillion German marks in Germany. Total, total currency. And remember, they didn't have anything digital at the time, so it was all paper. And two years later, a newspaper cost 1 trillion German marks. Wow. So that's how fast. Do I think that's going to happen in the United States? No. I think it's going to be a slow degradation of continual inflation, which the government underestimates intentionally so, meaning um, <clears throat> we have changed the way we measure it. And why do you think we do that? It's to lie. Well, obfuscate the truth, essentially, because guess what's matched, matched to inflation? Pretty much the majority of our spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, veterans pensions. All these things are matched to the official number that the government puts out on inflation. So they've changed how they measure inflation in a number of different ways. I won't really get into it, but there's people that still track like the old way we used to measure inflation because we had 20, we had pretty high inflation in the seventies and there's people that still measure inflation the same way. And if you were to do, if you were to measure inflation the same way we did in the seventies, we actually have 16% inflation today. Not it peaked at nine. It peaked at about 18 if we were to measure it the same way, but they keep changing the math um, to kick the can as much as I can down the road. And I think people will continue to work harder and harder and have less and less to show for it. Um, and then we can get a, into what to do about that. But um, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's also going to be expedited by Russia and China's buying of all the gold and silver and precious metals that they can find, which I think their stockpiles are growing very, very rapidly. And they can use that to hedge against saying, hey, like we, you know, working with the UAE and Saudi Arabia and stuff like that, or not UAE, but Saudi Arabia specifically and these oil tycoons in the Middle East and Russia and China saying, hey, we got gold. We got precious metals. What does the U.S. have? Security. What are you buying? And how how secure are you getting? Uh, you know things when in Yemen you're getting destroyed, or in these other places where that security is not really paying off. Um, and also, oh by the way, look at Afghanistan. How well did that pan out for that government? So mm -hmm. now you've got Russia saying, "Hey, we got we got gold. Like we're going to pay you in real." We have real money. It's actually backed by precious metals. China saying the same thing. Um, and so you've got China and Russia, in my opinion, teaming up to take out the big bully on the block, which has been the United States. We've been, we, I think we've gotten so comfortable with being so prosperous in our spending. Um, it's like the abusive wife that that's maxed out all the credit cards, but still lives in a life of luxury. When it's like the lawyers are knocking on the door and saying, "Hey, your time is coming," and you, yeah. you your IOUs don't mean anything anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. A, I use that analogy a lot. Like, like, what does national debt mean? And a lot of people they give a couple suggestions. They go, "Why don't we cut um, money to Ukraine?" Okay. Why don't we cut military spending? Okay. And they give off a number of the things that we waste money on. Uh, our butterflies gay or whatever the hell we study these days. 
Um, oh, yeah, must be true. <laughs> a non-binary butterfly, could it be? <laughs> um, <laughs> Stays but, a caterpillar his whole life. Yes. Good, good, good. <laughs> um, but uh, where was I going with that? Oh, it, that's, that is literally fiscal dust. Fiscal dust compared to the cliff we are marching towards with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. We have all these baby boomers retiring. We have like 270 trillion of unfunded liabilities. Here's the truth. Here's a 100% fact. You could take this to the bank. We aren't paying for that. So yeah. if we give them the dollars that was promised, it will buy them next to nothing because we will have to inflate it away. Or wow. we have to change the rules, like raise the age, whatever. We have to break a promise one way or another. And that's a, that is a hard fact. But if you look, if you're in the millennial generation like me, Gen Z, whatever, I think politicians are going to pit old people and young people against each other to a certain degree. They're going to say, hey, they already do it. They already do this. Hey, these people want to cut your social security. And it's like being a critical thinker, that's not actually the choice. So they give you a binary choice. These people want to cut your benefit or we want to give you your benefit. That's not the choice you have. It's, a, it's the same thing with the lockdowns and stimulus. It's, it's not uh, lock me down and I get stimulus. It's like, okay, that's the positive. What's the negative? The negative is we hyperinflate the whole economy, right? And now gas is $5 a gallon. So you lose that $600 check I gave you in about two months. So what's the trade-off of Social Security if we keep giving the money that we promised? It is hyperinflation because we have to print that difference. There's no way there's no way to grow an economy. This is why I say the math is certain. There's since we have 31 trillion in debt, there's no way to grow an economy uh, fast enough to pay that off. It's not happening. So it's just a do matter you, of how long it takes. Do you think that war is an option that they are looking at to be able to distract or to re jumpstart the economy out of the situation that it's in? There's no, there's no way, unless they do something like, um, with war, they go, you know, Japan owns a ton of the United States debt. Um, Europe does a lot of the United States debt is owned by pensions within the United States, believe it or not, by private citizens and pension funds and hedge funds. But, you know, China owns some and we go, Hey, you know, China's been bad, bad, bad. We're going to default on our debt to China, which is kind of what we did to Russia. Um, yeah, it's a possibility. It doesn't get them out of the hole though. Like the math going to, we had a lot of debt after world war two. Um, and the way we financed that was selling war bonds and yada, yada, yada. So a big number to, to worry about is debt, total debt to gross domestic products. So the size of the economy every year, it's basically like you looking at your credit card bill compared to what you make. So if it's gargantuan, if your credit card debt is gargantuan, you go, oh, I really only have two options here. Cut expenses or grow my income exponentially. And that doesn't work with taxes. That's not how taxes work. Well, no. what if a large amount of the population dies because of the war and you no longer have to front that bill? Um, will they be old people? Who knows? I mean, at the end of the day, if it's, if it's, if it's a strike on the home front and where young troops are getting killed abroad. I mean, you're decreasing the population, which means you don't have to fit the bill as much, which means your cost goes down. Well, if you're thinking like a evil villain, 
you'd be, and that's what you thought. I would say that you're pretty, you'd be a dumb evil villain. The reason I say that is because war is expensive. War is a net negative. So if you're looking at it just through an economic lens and you're like, how can we keep going down this road without pissing people off? Um, explode cities. <laughs> like it's not, uh, you know, war costs money. It costs yeah. more than you get. And the only uh, reason, you know, war may make you rich is if you literally steal other people's stuff, which is what people used to do. But we go and hand out diapers and just take ta taxpayers' yeah. money. Um, but it's uh, – is war an option as a distraction? Yes. As an economic uh, workaround? No, I don't think so. Um, but – these a lot of these politicians are pretty dumb. Yeah. So. Well, can, what do you think then about there was that CENTCOM, I don't know if you saw it, but the CENTCOM letter that was leaked or put out uh, on social media, I think it was yesterday or today, from uh, the AMC commander talking about 2025. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. Yeah, was, very was strange. Like, that's some weird language, like aim for the head. Who talks like that? Yeah. Um. A four like, star. That's who. I guess. I'm like, I've never heard anybody like talk like that. But um, we have a lot of power. Uh, we have, uh, how do I put this? A, a undue, unearned privilege because we have the world reserve currency. That is a massive privilege. It also has a cost, which I talked about earlier. We will do a lot to keep that privilege. Right. Because that is essentially what funds our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you know what I mean, like that's why we have thirty-one trillion dollars in debt. Because there's always a buyer for it. Because we have the world reserve currency, there's always a buyer. And yeah. ask Muammar Gaddafi how it worked trying to set up a gold-backed currency in Africa. Before. Yeah, didn't yeah. work out well. We didn't give a well, about Muammar Gaddafi. We can't. Like, we can't Muammar Gaddafi, Xi Jinping, or Vladimir Putin. And no. that's the thing is, it's like those two are combining together. And in my opinion, I think their relationship is a lot stronger than they let out to be. Um, I think that it's a front game to show that their relationship is weak. But they are on a on a footing and on a heading. And I think the CCP, honestly. Like you said, people, countries, and governments will do a lot to keep what they have or to maintain. Um, and if you push a dog into a corner, like the CCP, I think, is kind of backed into a corner economically uh, with their population, you know, with the one-child policy. Like there, there's a lot of things going against them, and they don't have a lot of time. If they're going to make their moves, it has to be now, especially if they want to take the first, the the top of the world stage. Yeah, so I would think about their their moves, though. You know, like um, Taiwan, for instance, have self destruct buttons. <laughs> it's not yeah, like they're going to show Taiwan. Up. Taiwan does not make sense to me. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Like, there's no benefit for doing that other than ideology. Shipping lanes, South China Sea, stuff like that makes more sense. Um, it's control of the economic. Um, but here's the problem with China, and you mentioned some of them. They rely on the West for consumption. They rely on us big time. We rely would you on say, Would you say, though, that that has been the case within the past two years, or they've really stopped that reliance since 2020 drastically since then? Uh, no. I would say we still get most of our stuff from China. Right. So um, 
it's changed. It's gone down for sure. But uh, their their GDP per capita, meaning how much the average person makes, is like ten thousand U.S. dollars. Granted, they have a billion people plus, but ours is like sixty. That's a big number, yeah. big differential. And what that means is, uh, we have demand. Uh, we ha- we have an economic uh, engine that funds a lot of things around the world, right. which provides mutual benefit to a lot of different countries. In China, China does too, but who needs who more? Um, I I don't know. Like these guys, I think they're they're not stupid, like yeah. Putin and Xi Jinping. Um, if if I were to sit down in a room with uh, American leadership and and learn all the secrets, aliens exist, UFOs, yada yada yada. They're called Nephilim. <laughs> Is that, <laughs> Blurry is that creatures, like, go watch it. Is that, is that like a wood nymph? Um, uh, yes. But if I were to sit down, um, you want, you want, so what America has that's unique is this, this desire, number one, to be free, but this entrepreneurial spirit. It's very rare. Like if you've traveled around the world, it, that's not normal, right? For people to be like, I want to invent something and get rich. That doesn't happen, especially in China. But our that engine of people making stuff and innovating and cutting off regulation, allowing people to use their brain instead of having to go through 18 layers of red tape to start a business, then they just go, F it, I'm not doing it, um, would get America back on the right footing. Um, because if you're competing, right, if you have two governments competing and one's totalitarian who takes a cut, you're only allowed to do certain things and do business with certain people. And the other one is free. It's a free market and you can compete. Uh, which one's going to do better? It's always going to be the free one. So they can shift a lot quicker totalitarian governments. They're a lot more nimble because everyone has to follow the leader. But when it comes to long-term success, it always fails. China's uh, China had a revolution before. They're kind of having a revolution during uh, COVID, and Iran is too. Um, so these people, uh, eventually, people get sick of the crap, right? Yeah. Um, and which, which yeah. is part of the reason as to why I'm why, and I've I've read some different articles as well, some from Jeff Nyquist and th- other other guys specifically who focus on populations, but that's the problem is the people are getting tired of the crap in those countries. And so the government has to do something there to bring everybody in lockstep. And COVID was not working. Like the whole COVID lockdown in China, which was absolutely insane, is not working. And it's and in fact it is it's poured gas on the fire. And so either it's it's I'm always trying to think like if I was a fly on the wall in Xi Jinping's room, which by the way Little do people know, Xi Jinping is one of the – he is a massive expert. He has a, a massive obsession with World War II. Um, he actually has a, a statue of Adolf Hitler in his uh, living quarters, oh, which I good. thought was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to think about who he's idealizing and what type of mindset he has is not the same rationale thinking that we have over here in the States because we have everything. So it's a lot – we have a lot more to lose for them. It's like – Screw it, my life sucks anyways. And so the CCP is a lot more desperate for keeping that power. Russia 
is also seeing that NATO is a huge threat, especially now what we're doing over there. So you have to think if I was in the room of Vladimir and if I was in the room of Xi Jinping, I was a fly on the wall and I see them talking. What are they talking about? And what are they bringing up as a solution along with their advisors to get rid of the threat and the problem, which is the United States? And also, by the way, when is a good, if you were to get rid of that threat, when is a good time to do that? Probably during a time when nobody in the United States thinks that anything can happen and the leadership is not, I wouldn't say probably the best historically throughout human history, the best or top notch leaders, uh, sitting in the chairs. So. You have to ask yourself, what are the odds? We're talking probabilities mathematically. Like, what is the possible odd that, you know, can all these different things happening in their own countries? And also, we don't have a lot to lose, or we have a, we, if we had it, we have so much prosperity that we couldn't fathom risking that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So these other countries do. So that's what terrifies me. It's not our state of wanting to go into war, but the state of these other countries who are looking to take us off, <laughs> take us out of the fight. And that, and the gain for them is if we don't exist and we're no longer a world power or, or no longer able to do all these things, the rest of the world will fold. Yeah, and I don't think you can – I agree with what you said. I don't think you – I got to think logically because – if he's an irrational thinker, Xi Jinping, like let's say he's a maniacal, insane person, who knows, right? Who knows what he's willing to do? Same thing with Vladimir Putin. But I, they know, like, ground war, kinetic war in their country, like shooting, like dropping a bomb or something in New York, that's not good, right? That is not good for their... Like even if they think they win that, a massive bite will be taken out of uh, China, right? And where does their power come from? Uh, it comes from demand, or like their economic power at least. It comes from this like artificially low human labor cost because they use kind of slavery to some degree. And the West going, we'll take your stuff if it's cheap. But that's where most of their economic engine comes from. It doesn't come from innovation and free thinkers or anything like that. They steal intellectual property for a reason because they don't have much. But so I think if I was them and I was thinking logically, I don't want to fire one shot. I want to, I want to take down the currency. So um, your, the audience can, can look this up too. So the BRICS nations have come to come together multiple times, trying to start a new currency. And it's harder than you think because part of a current part, part of a currency is a network effect meaning how many people use it. So starting a new one, you got to get people to trust it. Subconsciously, you trust currency, but really think about it. Like, why don't you use certain other currencies? It's because you trust one over the other or it's used. Or So there has to be a network effect. But Brazil, BRICS countries, B-R-I-C-S, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa have come together um, and said, hey, we want to start a new currency. So a huge part of currency is trade as well. Like, how do we settle this? And then how do we get the world to use this over the dollar? And you can look up Putin quotes about the dollar. Like, he hates that we have this undue influence on them, that we flex our might without firing a shot and say, yeah, you can't use this, or you can use this, we're going to charge you this, what have you. Just kind of having control over their economy with without being over there, he kind of gets frustrated at that. And a lot of countries would, by the way. 
we're if the the we switch moccasins and we're in that position, we'd be like, what the heck, dude? We don't want to be using this currency either. So I think that's the long game. Um, that is a guess. Total guess. But if I'm a rational thinker, I'm like, okay, kinetic war, bad for all people involved. And if we want power, if we're, if our cities are in heaps and on fire and half the people are dead and we already have uh, demographics problems, uh, that's not good, right? So how do we take them down through economic means, I think is what they're trying to do. And we're stepping right into it by being like, we're going to spend, <laughs> we're going to spend trillions of dollars on an inflation reduction act. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. I, I think for me, I think, you know, looking outward, I think it's mostly the mindset that disturbs me the most, the mindset of, of our ignorance to think and and the brashness to think that nothing can happen and and that we will be here for a long game and that's what disturbs me because i don't i don't if i was putin or she in my opinion especially now with ukraine going on because nato's not backing down so putin and she in my opinion don't have the time that I think that we think that they do. You know what I'm saying? I don't believe that they have the time to last the economic plan to slowly erode away the United States. I don't think the population is there for China specifically. Um, even Russia's population, they're just not having families as much. Most of it's because they're always getting drunk. Um, I can't remember who it was, but he was not Jeff Nyquist, he was actually just on Joe Rogan and he was talking about the different populations around the globe. Actually, the biggest population that's booming right Zahan? now... Yes, Peter Zion. Is Mexico. So, he, he was talking about the different populations, but when you combine that as a major problem for those countries, as the U.S. being a threat that is too big because the U.S., if it keeps going on this track with Russia and China, guess who's going to last longer? We will. Economically, we will. We'll figure a way to kick that count down further and further and further and outlast them economically. So that is why I don't fear the um, probability of us seeking out a, a conflict. I fear the probability that Russia and China and these other nations say we cannot last. Our government systems, our leadership, our power will not last for the long game. So we now have to bring it to the short game, which is a conflict. And there is tactically no better time than right now because – How would that help them uh, gain more – like so if it's a demographics that's the, problem – That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't think if, that – If it's a demographics problem, yeah. right, that's not something you can solve overnight. No. Uh, like literally, literally, it takes eighty years. <laughs> yeah. Like people being born today, if there's less people born, there's less eighty-year-olds eighty years from now. So it's not a it's not a problem you can solve like that. They unfortunately shot themselves in the foot. But I don't see that solving the problem, which is demographics. And and I don't think China's going to collapse, like Sehan says. By the way, because he he said China was going to collapse ten years ago. Yeah. In ten years. So. Is it on? I think they're weaker economically. I would mm -hmm. agree with you, but totalitarianism has its benefits. Um, it's horrible. It's evil. But when it comes to getting people to fall in line, and let's say there's hyperinflation, or there's inflation in China, and there's inflation in the United States, 
how well does it go over to say you can't buy eggs in the United States versus in China? It yeah. works a lot better over there, right? So that's so, yeah. I mean, that's that's something though that like even if we're looking at our own force, that's what I I, I hear those things of like, yeah, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. Yes, it would be a terrible thing. Things would be destroyed. But then you have the CENTCOM letter that comes out today saying, hey, we're going to be at war with China in a year and a half, a, a conflict, a direct conflict. So it's like, where are you getting that information from and why did you come to that conclusion and then also make the decision to draft that letter to publish? What do you yeah. know that I don't? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. There's, there's propaganda that is played on both sides. And I don't, that seems like a very odd thing to do. Yeah. Like, like knowing it was going to be leaked. Yeah. Say, talking like that. Um, it seems like an odd thing to do. Yeah. Maybe you're trying to send a message. Mm. Um, but uh, maybe it was directed, right? To, but I don't know. That, anything that's open source like that, that is like some general, like addresses hundreds of thousands yeah. of troops. Kind it's of like, like meant to be seen by the. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 So. It's always been a threat, right? China and Russia, and I don't know what the future holds, but I think um, ultimately the United States is its own worst enemy. Like you mm. can't, you. It's hard to defeat a freedom-loving country, armed, an armed freedom-loving country with a powerful economy and powerful military. Now we're losing the powerful economy part because of ourselves. That's really what it comes down to because we're, we got high on our own supply and we're like, Hey, uh, we can print to infinity and, uh, there are no consequences to it. And mm. unfortunately, um, there are, but we will weather those, but it, what does it do to the populace in the meantime? Right. You right. got a lot of social unrest. I think a lot of 2020 was pent up. Obviously there's racial rights and stuff, but there's a lot of anger for other things, I think. Um, and if you, if you just scroll the internet, listen to what millennials are saying about the economy, about trying to buy a house, like they are very disenfranchised in the United States today for good reason, for really good reason. And then you have boomers who are like, get a job. You know, when you, <laughs> when you were young, you could work one job and support a family of five easily. It's not the case anymore and it's going to get worse. So what happens to individuals? who feel like the American dream is dead. There is no middle class, which is by the way, a tenant of inflation. Like people either are rich, really rich because the rich get richer or they're poor. There is no middle class. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think like to your point, you know, it's, it's uh, a heavy subject, but like once that, once that unrest starts to happen and things start to unravel, um, we haven't hit the point yet where a lot of people are going, I can't feed my family. I cannot provide them shelter. I cannot work or my children are being taken away from me and dying. We haven't hit that point yet. We're still scrolling on TikTok and Instagram and having all these luxuries. But when we do hit that point up until that time, we have time to prepare, you know, and to be ready for that point when people have those things taken away and do those animalistic things. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that's a guarantee, by the way. I'm just saying history, it, it, as history is a guide, um, the best hope we have right now is that this happens slowly, and then we 
basically build a parallel economy because right there's a lot of con- con- look at google um argentina they've dealt with hyperinflation multiple times um and it wasn't chaos in the streets and people killing each other but um the, if it so if it happens fast that's when it can be like you go to your bank there's no money there you go to the grocery store there's nothing there because if you think about supply chains and running a business you run a business right there's a lot of uh you you get into these contracts and the the thing you, that's on the other side of the contract is dollars and if the value of that is changing every single day how hard is it to do business extremely hard right it's like well what's the value of this dollar in 6 months where i'm writing this contract for right so should i write it for more or less so yes we can get we can get through it but uh i i advise people to look at um you said we're not there yet and and hopefully we never get to uh world war z or whatnot the thunder yeah. but look at disability claims and look at unemployment where did everybody go you know you probably yeah i you honestly saw a great people question. it's like help wanted what did people just did, did did the rapture happen and i didn't go because no nobody was working in 2021 and 2022 and um it was across the board across the united states so where did everybody go and if you look at disability claims and which mental disability is in there, by the way, um, and you look at uh, unemployment, they're way up. So when you say we're, we're not there and that, where's that money coming from? It's coming from the printer or tax dollars. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be the problem is when you have a problem caused by the government if the populace doesn't know it or doesn't realize it, they go to the government for more help. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, lockdown is a perfect example. COVID didn't Man. do that. COVID yeah. didn't shut down your business. The government did. Then you went to the government to help you fund your lifestyle. It's like, dude, they're stealing from you. They're literally, this isn't. Oh, and you're going to pay it and you're going to pay it back. I guarantee yes. it. <laughs> yes. With, it, a, with interest. Yeah. Pr- probably the biggest fraud in the world history is what happened with the PPP loans. Like the, yeah. the level of oversight was next to nothing. Yeah. And people were getting PPP loans like you wouldn't believe. And government's wow. giving it out like candy. Yeah. Dang. And uh, you would never do that. And because you earned your money. Yeah. You would never do that. And so if we, if we constantly as voters go, hey, Government fix our problem. Don't balance a budget. Don't ever make hard decisions like, hey, do we fund war in Afghanistan for 20 years or your grandma's social security? Never make those hard decisions. We can do both by printing your grandchildren's future away. And uh, we've reached, unfortunately, the terminus of that where it's like there is no more free lunch. Like every every extra dollar printed, every deficit dollar printed, is going to add to the inflation pain, unfortunately. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, while the getting is good and inflation is somewhat not in your face, um, I would highly recommend everybody, like you were saying, buy a little bit of extra groceries, stick it in the pantry, or, and, and just be ready. Training for those contingencies or training in general, like learning those skill sets that at the end of the day, <laughs> it's your right to train. Two, it's your right to own anything that you want. We should be, which our rights are being infringed 
as of recently uh, by the AFT. But like, um, it's one of those things right now. Where it's like you have the time to prepare. We are just like Joseph when he was in Egypt in the Old Testament. You know, he used that time of plenty to stock up the grain houses. So when the famine came. He was good, you know, and Egypt was good. So uh, I think right now, you know, when it comes to training, when it comes to supplies, when it comes to your readiness, right now we're living still in a time of plenty and you still have the capability to prepare for famine. Yeah, be the be the warrior in the garden and uh, not the gardener in the war. Don't be the guy. Be an asset. I tell people that in the military all the time. It's like, don't be the guy who's just like, what do I do? And if you don't know what to do, ask, right? Yeah. Learn. No yeah. babies, no baby starts out knowing anything. And obviously everyone learns something. So if you don't know how to learn or know, don't know how to do it, ask an expert. But the other piece of advice I'd give people, this is an investment advice, but this is just food for thought. Um, buy things the government can't print more of. Mm. So if you're like, Hey, where do I put my extra cash? Um, mm. Gold, silver, I am a huge fan, and this is a whole other conversation we can have uh, at some point. I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin, um, for not because of the price, but because of the freedom aspect of it. Um, and uh, I think it's, I think the price is going to go up, but more importantly, it's a currency outside the system. Um, and we saw with the truckers what they did in Canada, the first thing they went for, and this is what normally happens, by the way. Um, and with foreign countries too, they go for their bank account and that's a third party that the government can control. And the cool thing about Bitcoin, no one can, can control it, but don't buy it if you don't understand it, but gold, silver, Bitcoin food, be less, uh, guns and bullets. Oh, well, actually. Yeah. That's the one I often forget. That's one of the, but this is for like investment, but if we're talking world war Z gold is kind of useless i'd much rather have bullets plus you can resell them like that's a great investment too because that's an actual commodity that is uh whether it comes to gunpowder metal and stuff like that all that goes into it is a commodity that they're they have to go into the earth and make get more of so as the government prints those things become more expensive yeah so whatever your cup Mm. of tea is but it's things the government can't print Hmm. What are some final words of advice, uh, kind of wrapping things up that you have for the audience? Um, I would say, um, the reason I focus so much on economics is wars are kind of in a way fought over it. Like there's ideals, there there's national pride, there's all that kind of stuff. But if you look at history, whether it's Japan invading uh, or bombing Pearl Harbor, whether it's Germany rising to uh, to power during World War II, it all involved economic stability or instability in, imposed upon them. Mm. So understanding that we have we cannot print to infinity is number one. Like there is understanding what the problem is in the math because. The math is certain we aren't getting out of the debt. So if you understand the problem, then you have the motivation to look for solutions. Most people are kind of be bopping along, whistling past the graveyard, thinking that we, we can both have our cake and eat it. And that's just not the case. Reality always wins. Does not care what your opinion is. Doesn't care what our opinion is. Reality always wins. 
And the reality in this case is math. Yeah. Cool. Well, Eric, thanks again for joining us and for our audience. Um, as always, be like Eric was saying, be an asset. Don't be a liability. So use this time of plenty to prepare. Go get some extra groceries. Go get some some assets. You know, buy gold, silver, bullets, guns. You know, Eric likes Bitcoin. Anything that is something that you can add to your wealth outside of relying on on other powers to do so. And then also make sure that you're getting training. There's no more important investment for a critical thinker than investing in yourself. You know, you always say it's like, hey, I need less supplies if I have more skills. So make sure that you're always investing in yourself and putting uh, training as top priority in your list of preparedness. Can I but, add um, thing? Yes, you can. Um, I forgot to say this. Keep your supply chain local as much as you can. Mm, yeah. If you've noticed, uh, there is a concerted effort to have these big behemoths like uh, big oil. Uh, that's a big one. Big big pharma uh, meat. All these, you know. And if you can, as much as possible, go to things like farmers markets. Support your local farmers. Support your local butcher. Um, through a local ranch, etc. That's a lot harder. Number one, you're helping them locally. Number two, that's a lot harder to control um, from a centralized government perspective. Notice there's been a lot of work around the Constitution like, well, government's not really shutting down your free speech. We're just kind of winking at Twitter to do it. Um, and we're not you know, shutting down your business. OSHA's doing that, right? It's just kind of they're, they don't want to preserve your freedom. And I, the same thing with food. It's like, hey, you go to the grocery store and all you have is Beyond Meat because the big meat producer, now they're making cricket bur burgers and there's no such thing. <laughs> Seriously, so, yeah. So there's no other option, right? So you got to support local, decentralize as much as possible. Decentralize your supply chain because if you go to the grocery store, there ain't nothing there. What do you do? Yeah. And you're already used to buying local, then it's no change. Boom. Plus you can get jacked like us. <laughs> and well... If you want to support local business, you can support us. We just got hats in, so... Oh, uh, boom. Hey, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy one of those. Cool, yeah, Our that'd be great. family discount. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the mustache, you get a discount. Oh, but, there uh, Yeah, so, yeah, go support us. Buy a hat or also come train with us. You can... We have our 2023 training schedule online. Uh, we would love to train with you, so... Um, but, yeah, once again, be an asset, don't be a liability, and remember to invest in yourself. 